Hello, and welcome back to Death by Ignorance. Thanks for joining the discussion, and thank you for supporting the podcast. Before we begin, last week a listener brought it to my attention that in discussing the important issues that we address on this podcast, I have a tendency to be rather opinionated. After careful reflection, I had to agree with the listener's point. I am rather opinionated. I try very hard to present each of these topics as factually and as accurately as my limited intellect allows, but a lot of what we talk about here is highly controversial, and that's where my opinions bubble to the surface. How can they not? When you spend as much time thinking about these issues as I do, you can't avoid having an opinion. But I recognize that nobody wants to listen to a blowhard, especially an opinionated blowhard, all the time. So I have decided to select one topic every 10 years that is devoid of controversy and unlikely to cause me to form a strong opinion of any kind. Because this constraint on my style is so unappetizing, I've decided to get the non-controversial episode out of the way immediately. So, until 2029, here it is. Death by Ignorance, Episode 16, Heavy Metal and Deafness. I like to think of myself as having very eclectic tastes when it comes to music. I'm not one of those people that sit down, close my eyes, and actually listen to music. I used to do that when I was younger, and it seemed important to understand what I was listening to. But I've changed, and my life has changed, and it's to the point where I have neither the time nor the patience to devote an hour or two to just listening. I listen to music while I do other stuff, like driving, cleaning the house, or preparing one of my irresistible Indian feasts. But not when I write. I can only write when it's quiet. There's some music that I can listen to at any time, no matter what I'm doing. Finger-style guitar, especially when it's being played by Tommy Emmanuel. Uh, prog rock from the days of King Crimson. Paul Simon making basically any noise at all, or a singer-songwriter named Mike Viola sharing his soul. Then there are a few types of music that will only work when I'm in a particular mood. Classical music's like that for me, and I have certain composers for certain states of mind. Though it doesn't happen often, I'll occasionally get the urge to listen to techno dance music, usually to go along with some strenuous activity that I wasn't able to get out of doing. And finally, there is the music that I never listen to. This is the music that I will leave the building to avoid. Music that has no redeeming qualities, that fits with no mood I've ever experienced, or could provide apt accompaniment for any activity that I've ever participated in. I'm sure you've already figured it out. Yes, I hate opera. And what, pray tell, does this have to do with today's discussion? Well, nothing. Nothing at all. What do mercury, cadmium, lead, arsenic, cobalt, chromium, copper, zinc, selenium, antimony, thallium, manganese, nickel, and silver all have in common. They're all either heavy metals or heavy metalloids. Today, I want to introduce you to this fascinating group of metallic elements, where they come from, their historical significance, how they get into our bodies, and what kinds of nastiness they cause when they get there. Along the way, I'll be giving you information of incalculable value should you ever find yourself on jeopardy. Not all are in agreement about exactly what constitutes a heavy metal. The term would seem to encompass a group of any metallic or metalloid elements with a high atomic number and hence high atomic mass. 
But not all metals with high atomic mass are considered to be heavy metals. There are somewhere between 91 and 95 metals in the periodic table of elements. The reason the number of metals isn't exact is because a few elements may be metallic in some circumstances and non-metallic in others. There's also not complete agreement on exactly where some elements should be grouped because they have properties of both metals and non-metals. Either way, the great majority of our 118 elements are metals, but only a handful are grouped into the heavy metals. To confuse matters further still, there are several lower atomic weight metals that may be grouped with the heavy metals. In fact, if you can remember the groups of the periodic table, you may know that heavy metals do not belong to a group of their own. That's because the key characteristic of a heavy metal is not its atomic structure at all. Instead, the elements of this group share one important characteristic. They're all toxic to humans. So when you look at a periodic table of the elements, you'll find the heavy metals spread across the transition metals, the post-transition metals, the metalloids, and in the case of selenium and arsenic, in the non-metal group. When we talk about heavy metals, then, we aren't talking about a physically defined group of elements that's based on atomic structure or their location on the periodic table. We are talking about a group of mostly metallic elements that are toxic to humans, even at small concentrations, and which have a tendency to accumulate in biologic systems. But that definition rather begs the question of just how toxic must the element be and what constitutes a low concentration. The elements that almost everyone agrees fit into this category are lead, cadmium, mercury, thallium, arsenic, and chromium. Others like copper, zinc, and selenium meet most of the requirements for inclusion in the heavy metals, but also happen to be necessary components, albeit at trace concentrations, in human metabolic pathways. In higher concentrations, they transform from necessary for life to potentially deadly. One important quality of the heavy metals is that they are naturally occurring elements, and as such, they can't be destroyed. That's what the word element means. These indestructible metals find their way into human tissues in many different ways, uh, many of which are attributable to human environmental impact, like the lead that leaches into the Flint, Michigan water system from old lead water pipes, or the mercury dumped into our oceans as industrial waste that then accumulates in the bodies of certain fish and enters the human food chain. And as I just mentioned, heavy metals have a tendency to accumulate in biologic systems, usually because the elements are taken into the tissues far more readily than they can be eliminated. The point of all this is that the heavy metal group, and I just resisted the urge to make a Pantera joke, is quite heterogeneous as a group of elements, both in their atomic makeup and in their toxic profiles. So to learn more about these potentially deadly substances, we're going to have to look at them one at a time. I think it makes sense for us to start with the three elements uh, that are considered to be the most important heavy metals in terms of their impact as environmental pollutants. These three bad actors are all post-transition metals and include cadmium, CD on the periodic table, mercury, abbreviated HG, and lead, or PB, in chemical shorthand. By the way, the reason mercury is shortened to HG is because it was first described by the ancient Greeks, who named it hydrogyrum, or liquid silver. The PB used to denote lead comes from the Latin word plumbum, which also means liquid silver. Confusing, right? Let's begin, then, with cadmium. The post-transitional metal cadmium falls in the same group as zinc, mercury, and copernicum. Its cadmium's similarity to zinc, directly above it on the periodic table, that makes it so dangerous to the environment and to humans. 
Zinc is an absolutely essential micronutrient required by plants and animals, including us. Under certain conditions, human tissue can't tell the difference between these two very similar elements, and when exposed to cadmium, the tissue will incorporate the toxic metal right into its biochemistry. The real problem arises from the fact that cadmium is held in the cells for a very long time. It is excreted eventually, but it can take decades to get out of a human body. While it circulates in our bodies, it causes serious damage to the kidneys, with more damage accumulating over time. It's known to cause chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, when it's inhaled, and has been implicated as a causative agent in certain types of lung cancer. It's also known to cause severe bone problems like osteoporosis and osteomalacia. There is some evidence that high blood pressure and damage to heart muscle tissue can occur from exposure to cadmium in animals, but so far no link has been demonstrated between the metal and heart disease in human beings. It's been estimated that we absorb about 0.15 micrograms of cadmium a day. That's from the air we breathe, and we get about 10 times that amount from our drinking water. A microgram, by the way, is one one-thousandth of a gram. It's a pretty small amount. And here's your first Jeopardy hint. If the answer to the question is between two and four micrograms, the question is, how much cadmium do you get from smoking a packet of cigarettes? Okay, you wrote that down, I hope. The cadmium that makes it into the environment most often comes from refineries that are extracting zinc, and to a lesser extent, lead, from the ores that the metals occur in. In fact, zinc ore is a blend of zinc and cadmium compounds. You can't extract the zinc without also extracting the cadmium. But we also use cadmium in ways that often result in further environmental contamination. If you have a camera, for example, or for that matter, any number of other high-tech electronically powered devices, you may be using the most common cadmium-containing consumer product out there, the nickel-cadmium battery. The combination of nickel and cadmium allows for rechargeable batteries with longer life and higher power output than other common chemistries. Cadmium's also used as a coating for metals that are used in high-stress situations like marine and aerospace engineering. The metal and its salts are also used to stabilize PVC, they're used as pigments, and as a component in several metal alloys. It also shows up as a contaminant in detergents, fertilizers, and in refined fossil fuel products. So, unless you're a smoker, most of the cadmium you're exposed to is in the food you eat. It gets into the food either through the agricultural use of phosphate-based fertilizers or from acidified rain containing cadmium that falls onto our crops. The rest we get from breathing and from the drinking water. Occasionally, large amounts of cadmium, along with other metals, can enter the environment suddenly and unexpectedly. Like in 1998, when a dam situated in southern Spain at the Coto di Donana Nature Preserve uh, ruptured, releasing millions of tons of contaminated mud down into the park. The dam had been holding back the effluent from a large mining and refining interest situated upstream from the park. It's estimated that the damage caused to Europe's largest bird sanctuary and to the farms and fisheries fed by the contaminated Rio Guadamar River system will be permanent. But not all is doom and gloom with cadmium. Global progress is being made. As a result of the improvements in drinking water treatment over the last few decades, and probably also due to the declining number of smokers, the amount of cadmium in American bodies has been decreasing. The decrease is fairly slight, but it is promising, and we could be doing better. 
There are viable alternatives to cadmium in many of the industrial processes that I mentioned earlier, but the implementation of sweeping changes in established industrial processes can be complicated and expensive. It's not something that industry is likely to do on its own. It'll take some degree of regulatory pressure to move us in the right direction. And given our current political climate, with regulations being undone as fast as the EPA can be dismantled, that is unlikely to happen anytime soon. But it is another of the factors we need to be paying attention to when we go to the voting booths in 2020. We should be looking for leadership that understands the importance of environmental protection so that when it comes time to fill the seats vacated by imprisoned congressmen and senators, we'll know where to cast our votes. That sounded a little bit like an opinion. Forgive me. Moving on. What about mercury? This fascinating and enigmatic post-transition metal sits directly beneath cadmium on the periodic table. The element exists as a liquid under normal conditions of atmospheric pressure and temperature, hence the common name quicksilver. But unlike some of the other heavy metals, this one has no role in human metabolism. It's not found naturally in any plant or animal, so when it's seen in tissue, it's as a toxin. About 10% of the mercury in our environment is put there by an unlovely sounding process called mantle degassing. Think of it as a kind of toxic planetary farting. Gases enter our atmosphere through volcanic eruptions or more slowly by leaking around the edges of tectonic plates. It doesn't squirt from the ground as a liquid, but enters the atmosphere as a vapor, which is formed by the intense heat beneath the Earth's crust. The vapor is relatively inert in the atmosphere, meaning it doesn't readily get involved in chemical reactions, and it doesn't cause problems for humans when it's up there. It can stay in this vaporous state for up to a year, drifting to every cubic centimeter of the Earth's atmosphere during that time. Eventually, though, it's incorporated into one of two very dangerous organic compounds, monomethylmercury and dimethylmercury, which falls into our oceans. Once in the sea, it enters the food chain, eventually finding its way into fish, where it's accumulated to form concentrations more than a million times higher than in the atmosphere. And then, of course, we eat the fish. But to understand the impact of mercury on a population, we should talk briefly about what happened in the waters of Minamata Bay in Japan, beginning in 1932. The Japanese Chiso Chemical Company was producing large amounts of mercury as byproducts from a number of other industrial chemical reactions. It was being dumped, along with other heavy metals and organic poisons, directly into the bay. Unbeknownst to the people of Japan, the mercury was being very efficiently concentrated into the tissues of the bay's sea creatures. Sea creatures spend much of their time and energy eating other sea creatures. And by the time you get up to the apex predators of the food chain... Uh, whatever trace elements that had been scavenged by plankton and shrimps and little fish and big fish lower down the chain were swallowed whole by the boss fish, and we are mighty fond of eating raw boss fish. After about 20 years of constant polluting, the mercury became sufficiently bioaccumulated by the tuna of Minamata Bay to start causing problems to humans. As the levels of the heavy metals in this staple of the Japanese diet soared, so too did the cases of a strange new medical condition. It was named Minamata Syndrome. In 1952, 500 deaths were attributed to Minamata Syndrome, mercury poisoning, from the ingestion of contaminated fish. 
Mercury poisoning can present itself in a variety of different ways, depending largely on the compound that was ingested, the size of the dose, the duration of the exposure, and the overall medical condition of the victim. Mercury poisoning can be acute following ingestion of a large amount of the element, or it can be chronic as seen with long duration of exposure to lower levels of the toxin. But almost all intoxicated persons will have some component of sensory or motor impairment. The actual neurologic phenomenon encountered may be hearing loss. Heavy metal causes deafness as well as blindness, loss of balance and coordination, and an inability to speak. At the lowest levels of exposure, the only manifestation may be a sleep disturbance or mild tremors, and in some cases, cognitive decline. This kind of non-specific presentation would be typical when mercury concentrations are between, say, 1 and 50 micrograms per cubic meter. But when the mercury concentration falls between, say, 1 and 50 milligrams per cubic meter, the presenting symptoms would be significantly more alarming, with chest pain, shortness of breath, trouble breathing, coughing up blood, all symptoms of an acute severe interstitial pneumonitis. Inhaling significant doses of mercury vapor can lead to profound central nervous system effects, including delirium, hallucinations, and even suicide. A more chronic illness, typically seen as a result of occupational exposure, will often manifest with progressive irritability, social withdrawal, and sleeplessness, though the onset of tremors, some of which can become quite violent, is not that uncommon. Inflamed and swollen gums are often seen with chronic exposure. Mercury, especially in its inorganic form, but also as methylmercury, is known to cause congenital defects in exposed fetuses and is also implicated in the problem of spontaneous abortion. About the only treatment for mercury poisoning, as with most heavy metal toxicity, is chelation. Chelation therapy involves the injection of compounds that have a high affinity for the heavy metal that's been absorbed by the patient's body. The idea here is that the chelating agent binds the mercury wherever it finds it, and then it's excreted with the chelator as it's filtered out of the blood in the kidneys. The most commonly used chelator for heavy metal poisoning is probably ethylene diamine tetraacetic acid, known as EDTA, though there is quite a bit of evidence that other chelators like dimercaptosuccinic acid and dimercaprol may be more effective in mercury toxicity. But before you get all excited and suggest we should just start putting EDTA in the drinking water as a precaution, Chelation therapy can present a whole new set of ugly problems. Many patients undergoing therapy will suffer severe headaches, fever, nausea, and vomiting, which is bad enough. But others may become acutely anemic, suffer cardiac arrhythmias, hypotension, seizures, brain damage, kidney failure, anaphylactic shock, severe and potentially deadly hypocalcemia or low blood calcium, and liver failure, and some of them die. The treatment itself is harsh and it's expensive, requiring hundreds of injections over a period of months. I don't know how much a single dose of EDTA costs these days, but when you add in the costs for the infusions several times a week, it adds up fast. Oh, and it's not always effective. The actual reduction in blood-heavy metals can be disappointingly low, given the serious risks of the treatment. Now, though it should go without saying, no sane person would ever take medical advice from a podcast. But if you have mercury poisoning, you might not be completely sane. So let me spell one thing out. If you or someone you know has symptoms that you think might have been caused by exposure to mercury, 
go to see your doctor right away. And under no circumstances, none, ever, should you break open thermometers to play with the elemental mercury that comes out. I did that a bunch of times when I was a kid. And look at me now. It's just not worth the risk. Given the pretty dodgy options for treating a mercury-poisoned person, there's a lot to be said for prevention. Keeping mercury out of our food, water, and atmosphere sounds like something we should be prioritizing. Well, technically, we are. There are several laws on our books that address this danger directly. The Clean Water Act, the Clean Air Act, the Resource Conservation and Recovery Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, and let's not forget the rather specific Mercury-Containing Rechargeable Battery Management Act of 1996. These are actual laws that empower the United States Environmental Protection Agency to prevent excess emissions of compounds containing mercury. At the risk of letting another opinion slip out like a mantle degassing, I feel I should point out that the current administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, Andrew Wheeler, is a former coal industry lobbyist. He's a lawyer and he's an outspoken climate change denier. You may recall the Wheeler quote that I shared with you a few weeks ago. Climate change is the greatest hoax ever perpetrated on the American people. Sure, Wheeler is a marginal improvement over the former administrator, Scott Screw the Environment Pruitt, but only in the same way that gonorrhea is a marginal improvement over syphilis. Yes, Andrew Wheeler is our first line of defense against the heavy metal poisoning of our children and grandchildren. End of opinion. Before we leave Mercury behind and head over to Leadville, there are a few Mercury side notes that may come in handy at cocktail parties. Naturally occurring mercury deposits are in the form of mercuric sulfide or cinnabar, not to be confused with cinnabuns, also deadly but mighty tasty. When you grind cinnabar to a very fine powder, you get vermilion, the reddish pigment named after the color of lips, or possibly that's the other way around, I don't recall, but mercury used to be all over the place. You could find the liquid metal in thermometers and sphygmomanometers, home weather station barometers, and those cool, tilting, rocking switches that turn your heating and air conditioning on and off. You won't see it much these days, except maybe in your granny's house or on the desk of your 115-year-old family doctor. One place it can still be found is at the dentist's office. I understand that not as many dentists are still using amalgam, which is a mixture of liquid mercury and finely powdered copper, tin, and silver that hardens to the familiar shiny fillings seen in the uh, gobs of old-timey folks like me. But as long as even one dentist is still using the stuff, amalgam will remain on my long list of reasons that I despise dentists. As endlessly fascinating as mercury is, we need to move on and look at our third common heavy metal of concern, lead. Lead, or uh, plumbum to any uh, centurions who happen to be listening in, is a heavy metal element with the atomic number 82. It's two slots to the right of mercury on the periodic table, and it's another fascinating element. It's not as exotic as mercury, but with an equally interesting history and toxicity. And you've probably heard more about lead poisoning than you have about all the other heavy metals combined. And that's because lead still has many legitimate uses. Until 20 years ago, it was used as an anti-knocking additive in gasoline and still is used in the construction of lead-acid batteries. 
It's an important metal in a lot of alloys and is added to other metals to improve the malleability and extrusion properties of the metal. That's how easily they're bent or drawn out into wire. Lead is also used in the manufacture of pigments as sheathing for electrical cables and, of course, to make projectiles for killing people with. Human exposure to lead can be through ingestion of contaminated drinking water or food and by inhaling the air, especially if contaminated by the dust of disintegrating lead-based paint. It can be eaten by young ragamuffins with a propensity to put dirt in their mouths, and it can enter the body in a hail of bullets from them dirty coppers that ambushed your vehicle as you were making your getaway. Lead is among the most commonly recycled non-ferrous metals, and it's used in a great many industrial processes. As we've seen with the other heavy metals, the symptoms of poisoning are quite variable and depend a lot on the dose, the frequency, and the duration of exposure. Fetuses, babies, and children are considerably more sensitive to lead toxicity than are adults, with the relative toxicity decreasing with age. With very high levels of exposure, something that is very uncommon in this day and age, you can see kidney disease, joint deterioration, intestinal maladies of all types, problems with the production of hemoglobin, and deterioration of the central nervous system. Exposure can also lead to infertility and other reproductive-related infirmities. In other words, getting lead poisoning is a lot like getting old, only sooner. One well-studied effect of exposure to lead is the neuropsychiatric impact of the metal during development. Some researchers have published data suggesting that an almost linear relationship between blood levels of lead in developing children and their IQ test results. The mechanism of lead's toxicity is quite interesting too. It mimics other metals like calcium, iron, and zinc replacing them in the complex molecular structure of various enzymes and biologic cofactors. It also has the tendency to bind to sulfhydryl groups on enzymes. The result is that many of the affected enzymes are, are unable to function as needed in the presence of lead. It's bad stuff, and you don't want it sloshing around in your blood. Treatment is similar to any other heavy metal toxicity, and that is by chelation. Dimacaprol is the most effective agent in chronic poisoning, while EDTA and a couple of additional calcium chelates are required in acute toxicity. Lead has a number of unusual chemical and physical properties. It's unique in being the element with the highest atomic number among the stable elements, elements that do not undergo spontaneous decay. Three of lead's isotopes are the final end products in the nuclear decay of some other heavier elements like uranium. As metals go, lead is rather non-reactive and exhibits the strange property of being amphoteric. What that means is that its oxides can react with both acids and bases. For anyone craving a flashback to Chemistry 101, lead compounds are usually found in the 2-plus oxidation state, quite unlike the 4-plus oxidation state typical of carbon, the lightest element in lead's group. But like carbon, lead is able to form bonds with itself, resulting in strange polyhedral crystal-like aggregates. It isn't very difficult to get lead out of the ground or to extract it from its primary ore, galena. As an added bonus for would-be lead miners, galena often also contains silver. The total amount of lead produced by every mine and recycling facility on the planet in 2014 was about 10 million metric tons, which is a lot of lead or anything else for that matter. There's 10 million metric tons after all. Lead's unusual physical properties like very high density, malleability, 
low melting point and low oxidative reactivity. Along with its ready availability, plentiful supply and low cost has made it an attractive option for a variety of uses down history. In addition to the uses I mentioned earlier, lead has also been found to be an excellent choice for radiation shielding and in construction. It was the ideal material for making weights and could form fusible alloys for use in things like soldering, or soldering as they call it in these here parts. The oxides of lead formed a bright and long-lasting white pigment that soon became the industry standard for interior house paint. And let us not forget lead's arguably most important role in the drama of human advancement as a plumbing material. Those of you who are especially astute and not yet fully inebriated may have already picked up on the uncanny resemblance between the Latin word for lead, plumbum, and the exorbitantly overpriced service industry known as plumbing. What a remarkable coincidence, the more inebriated listener might think. But no, plumbum thanks to its resistance to corrosion and its highly ductile physical properties, was the ideal material from which to fashion the water conduits that were used to move the vital fluid around Rome. Was it not for plumbum, we would not have plumbing, and a lot less lead poisoning, I think. We should stay with the Romans a little longer. These guys had so much of the soft metal it was the byproduct of smelting galena for silver, after all, that they used it for everything they could dream up. It was used to make poisonous cosmetics, toxic pharmaceuticals, deadly drinking vessels, and noxious currency. Some enterprising Roman architect or builder decided that lead would make the ideal roofing material. And then there were a couple of uses for Roman lead that I found so interesting, I decided they deserve a special mention. The first was lead was used to make special mixing cups in which sweeteners for food and wine were prepared. And why of lead? According to Pliny the Elder, the lead conferred an agreeable taste due to the formation of something they called sugar of lead. We now call it lead to acetate, and uh, I have no desire to taste it. The final and most bewildering use for the lead of ancient Rome was as the medium on which to write letters. You know, the ancient precursor to email. But you're left wondering how many other materials did they think about and then chuck out because they were just impractical for letter writing? Maybe linen or bark. What about paper? But no, they decided that the obvious choice was lead. The decline and fall of the Roman Empire makes a little more sense in the context of a postal service that took six weeks and four postmen and two oxen to deliver a single letter. Amazingly, the popularity of the 75-pound postcard survived the discovery by Vitruvius that lead was in fact poisonous. Some historians have suggested that widespread lead poisoning was a contributing factor in the fall of Rome, but most of the others don't buy that. Nevertheless, whether it was killing off Romans by the score or not, lead was by far the most commonly used material in classical antiquity. And according to two wine historians, Heinz Eschnauer and Marcus Stepler, lead was to the Romans as plastic is to us. I wonder if the Roman Postal Service thought that. After the fall of Rome, European lead production plummeted, and for several centuries most of the metal was mined and purified in China and India. European interest in lead as a building and plumbing material was rekindled in the 11th and 12th centuries, and by the middle of the 13th century it was being used extensively for the manufacture of stained glass. 
It was around this time that alchemy, the homeopathy of the Middle Ages, took root in the imaginations of philosophers and scientists of the day. I mean that kindly, and the homeopathy analogies a poor one. Great minds of the day were trying to change the atomic characteristics of lead to make gold. But this was before there was the faintest idea of the atomic structure of anything, or atoms for that matter. So the alchemists of the Middle Ages should get a pass for trying to purify lead and adjust its essential leadness in order to make gold. Homeopathists deserve no such break. We have a thing called science now. Needless to say, nobody figured out how to make gold from the dull grey heavy metal. So they did what any reasonable person would do with all of that leftover lead, and they started putting it in wine again. It remained an adulterant in wine for four centuries on and off, and caused mass poisonings well into the late 1700s. Two major developments in the Renaissance resulted in even more lead poisoning. One was the invention of the printing press, which used a ton of lead in its construction, resulting in clouds of lead dust and loads of dead printers. Along with the printing press, the mid-1400s also saw the invention of the firearm. And right away, lead became the projectile of choice because of its density and its low melting point. It wasn't as cheap as other metals like iron, but the advantages outweighed the cost. You might think that lead had finally peaked as the most efficient people-killing element of all time. But you'd be wrong. Lead needed a way to kill people during times of peace as well as in wartime. And so it became the main ingredient in the most popular cosmetic of the time, Venetian ceruse. This nasty material was made from powdered lead and vinegar, and the hoi polloi would slather the stuff all over their faces, giving them the ghoulish look popularized by the Queen of England, Elizabeth I. Fun fact. When Lizzie number one died of lead poisoning, or sepsis, or tonsillitis, or cancer, or a streptococcal infection, historians can't seem to make up their minds which it was, but she was found to have a one-inch thick layer of Venetian ceruse plastered all over her face. I'm sticking to my guns on this one. She definitely died of lead poisoning. Eventually, this horrid practice of toxic whiteface fell out of vogue in Europe, but it was promptly taken up by the Japanese, who thought a pasty white lead face mask made their geishas look pretty hot. Until they died of lead poisoning, that is. Amazingly, this practice and using real lead remained popular until the middle of the 20th century. In more recent times, the mining and extraction of lead surged with the Industrial Revolution, first in the British Isles, then across Europe, and eventually in the Americas. By 1900, the United States was the largest producer of lead on the planet. Two of the primary lead consumers were the paint industry and the manufacturers of plumbing materials. Gradually, the numbers of people, and I should say mostly poor people, falling ill from chronic lead exposure swelled until the problem could no longer be ignored. The connection between lead and sickness was finally made in the mid-19th century, thanks to the work of researchers like Alfred Garrard, an English doctor and astute observer. And before long, exposure to lead paint, lead dust, and lead plumbing was linked to a broad range of physical and psychiatric symptoms. In 1870, England became the first industrialized country to enact laws that would limit the exposure of workers to lead in the workplace. As more and more became known about lead's toxicity, the element was phased out of many popular uses in America and in Europe. Between 1900 and 1944, 
the incidence of lead poisonings in the United Kingdom was reduced 25-fold. The last mass exposure to lead resulted from the introduction of a new anti-knocking agent, tetraethyl lead, in 1921. This chemical, when it was added to gasoline, could reduce the incidence of spontaneous ignition of the compressed fuel and air mixture in the cylinder of an internal combustion engine. And no, I didn't know that until I watched a YouTube video in which a 12-year-old boy explained the process to me. The last major source of environmental lead contamination was finally cut off when leaded gasoline was taken off the US and European markets back in 2000. Lead is still being produced, primarily for use in lead-acid batteries, by mining and refining lead ores and by recycling scrap metals. And lead isn't going anywhere. Aside from battery production, lead is still the preferred material for hundreds of niche applications. It's used to make metal alloys with special metallurgic properties, to shield high-tension power lines, to soundproof recording studios, and to shield nuclear reactors. Lead's used to make organ pipes, of all things, and the keels of sailing boats. A big chunk of lead, 600 metric tons of the stuff, is the only thing stopping the Leaning Tower of Pisa from becoming the Laying Down Tower of Pisa. And that's just three of the most important heavy metals that we should be aware of. There are plenty of others like chromium, copper, zinc, iron, and manganese, and I'm not going to get into them here. But there is one that is so steeped in law, so integral to popular culture, I can't not bring it up. I'm talking, of course, about arsenic, Agatha Christie's go-to poison. By the way, if you've never watched Frank Capra's 1944 classic Arsenic and Old Lace, starring Cary Grant and Priscilla Lane, please do so. You will be glad you did. Arsenic occurs naturally in one of two forms, realgar and orpiment. The former is arsenic sulfide and it forms spectacular dark red crystals. In this crystalline form, it's known as ruby sulfur or ruby of arsenic, both of which make it sound a lot nicer than it actually is. Orpiment is another arsenical sulfide mineral with a slightly different molecular structure. The orpiment has two arsenic atoms and three sulfur atoms, whereas realgar has four of each. They're both soft and they're found around volcanic fumaroles and hot spring vents. The ancient Greeks knew about this stuff and they knew that it was pretty nasty. According to a Greek geographer, Strabo from 2000 years ago, wrote that only slaves were allowed to work in the orpiment mines because they're all going to die from the fumes. Hmm. Arsenic was responsible for the poisoning of 6,000 Manchester beer drinkers, killing 70 of them when it contaminated a batch of brew in 1900. It's a major problem in parts of Asia today, where its presence in the groundwater affects the health of millions. Arsenic is a metalloid, having characteristics of both metals and non-metals. It's used along with lead in the manufacture of batteries, and as gallium arsenide, it's the second most commonly used semiconductor after doped silicone. As the trioxide, arsenic is used as a pesticide, insecticide, and herbicide. That should tell you something right there. A lot of siding going on. It kills everything. It's even used to treat lumber. Arsenic causes cancer, among other things. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency has stated that arsenic, in any form, poses serious health risks to humans which is probably another reason why Scott Pruitt was so hell-bent on getting rid of all those pesky regulations. Well, that's enough of the chemistry. Getting down to the fun facts and trivial pursuit answers, arsenic is really very poisonous. But the symptoms that it produces are very nonspecific. 
meaning that there's no way to know that the vicar died of arsenic poisoning. Could have been a heart attack. That made it the perfect poison, for a while anyway. A very accurate and specific test for arsenic poisoning, the Marsh test, was eventually developed. But up until then, it was the go-to poison for knocking off your upper-crust adversaries and became known as the king of poisons and the poison of kings. Apropos of nothing, other than liking to say it out loud, the first organometallic compound was synthesized by reacting potassium acetate with arsenic trioxide in 1760. The adventurous or insane scientist was a chap named Louis-Claude Cadet de Gassicourt, and his compound was named Cadet's Fuming Liquid. What an awesome name. The books don't explicitly state that he promptly dropped dead, but it stands to reason if he did. But it gets better. Victorian women who wanted to avoid being seen with pink cheeks or the ruddy complexion of a farm worker, God forbid, ate a mixture of arsenic trioxide mixed with chalk and vinegar to make their skin look pale. If this failed to make them pale enough, they would rub arsenic directly onto all of their exposed skin. Uh, with a high enough dose, this was 100% effective in turning the skin white and cold and still. Arsenic somehow found its way into a batch of sweets being made in a factory in the English city of Bradford in 1858, a hundred years before my birth, so I had nothing to do with it. And before it was all over, 20 prepubescent pear drop popping people were dead. Two arsenic-based pigments, Paris Green and Shields Green, became very popular as dyes. Everyone was using these dyes to turn things green until the dyeing turned to dyeing, which might be funnier in print, I think, but the stuff was pulled from the shelves only to be rebranded and sold to farmers as an insecticide. They should try that with Dr. Pepper. But out of concern that plain old arsenic might not be poison enough for the pesticides, some bright young chemist decided to mix it with another heavy metal poison and invented lead arsenate, which was liberally sprayed onto crops until a completely safe, utterly harmless and non-toxic replacement was discovered, DDT. And now I fear that I may have overstayed my welcome. I could talk about this fascinating stuff for hours, but prudence dictates that I should probably stop talking before you stop listening, if you haven't already. I hope this brief departure from talking about weightier matters has not disturbed anyone expecting the more familiar hour of doom and gloom. If it did, please let me know. If you might like to hear more of this type of content in a similar vein in the future, well, let me know that too. In the meantime, stay away from heavy metals and have a pleasant week. Good day.